Well, this is the best Sunday of all Sundays. Every Sunday we gather to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But in particular, on this one, is just to remind ourselves of the greatest news. This is why we're here. Uh, and so we celebrate the resurrection. And in that, we, we celebrate that, that sin was paid for, finally. That death itself was defeated. That good ultimately triumphed over evil. Those are amazing things. And if you've had a bad morning, let me just remind you that Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. This is the best news, right? How could we be not happy? But you know what? All of that, the resurrection, the good news is just the beginning. That when Jesus rose from the tomb, it wasn't just about him defeating death, but everything that happened because of that. And that's what we're going to be starting today. We're starting a six-week series, and that's not even long enough, but I know after six weeks you get kind of bored with the topic. So we're just going to do six weeks. We're going to talk about some of the really great news, the things that have happened, the ramifications of the cross, the ramifications of an empty tomb, why it is that we have good news that truly brings great joy. And this morning, we're going to talk about heaven, which is a happy topic. And as we begin this series, you know, we always have an anchor verse somewhere in Scripture that really kind of holds together the, the theological truth of, of what we're going into, right? And, and as we start this series, I, I selected a, a passage from Psalm 31, and it's verse 24, that says, Be strong and take heart, all of you who hope in the Lord. And I want you to understand the context of this psalm. King David wrote this psalm when life wasn't good. In fact, he was in dire straits. Bad things, including death, awaited him. He, like His world was falling apart, right? He was in a place from a human perspective, you shouldn't have hope. And he talks about it pretty honestly in that psalm. And I'm glad to know that when I'm feeling a little bit uh, hopeless, that I'm not the only one. And Scripture speaks about things. It's not just a pie-in-the-sky kind of faith that life's always happy because it's not. But in the midst of that depravity, in the midst of that brokenness, in the midst of that hopelessness, in the midst of the despair, David does something amazing. He instead of looking at his surroundings and my hopes in my armies, my hopes in my position, my hopes in my intellect, my hopes in, in what I can do, he begins to remember God. And as he goes into this, this is the, the, the kind of the, the end of the, 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 um, the climax of that particular psalm as he goes to and he says, you know, well, where does he find his strength and his hope? It's in God. And that is an amazing thing that, that psalms are music lyrics, right? He, he writes this about this time of despair and what brought him out of it. And you know what? It was the Lord. It was God that allowed him not to just give up. Instead, this is something that he applied in his own life, which is something that is core to us as, as all people of faith, because the world is sometimes pretty broken, and sometimes there are problems that just seem insurmountable. There are heartaches that are too big for us to bear on our own. Sometimes it just seems from a human perspective, where is the hope? But we don't give up. Instead, we can be strong, that we don't have to give in, that we have this, this reason to, to have an assurance, a confidence in the midst of the impossible. Why? Because our hope is in ourselves and the Lord, and therefore we can also not just be strong, but we can take heart. That means to, to be courageous, to not give up. And we need that. But the secret to it, the very end, is where our hope is in. If we place our hope in the Lord, 
If we place our hope there, strength and courage follow. And this is something I think the disciples, along with uh, King David, would, would fully agree with. Before I get to their story, on our connection cards, I do something very nice for you every week. And I say me, I mean Caleb, who does this for us. But he prints these anchor verses for you. They're perforated, so you could take this and pull it off. In the next six weeks, I invite you to memorize this, to think about it. That's called meditation, but be thinking about it. That when you're feeling overwhelmed, when hardship comes, when it just seems like there's darkness, to remind yourself of God's truth, that it's not hopeless because there's God. And that's where we find our strength and hope in. So let the Word of God be something that helps you to begin with. So you could pull that off, put it in your pocket wallet, and uh, remind yourself of that. Now let's talk about another group of people that had a, uh, a pretty rough go at things. They were, it was pretty pretty hard for them, and those are the disciples. You're going to read their story in John chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, and then you can make notes in it. I'll also have it on the screen for you. But in John chapter 14, the Apostle John, who writes this book, gives us the account of the last evening of Jesus's life, where we have the Last Supper. It's where Jesus shows up, and, and the Last Supper starts out as a really festive occasion. It's the Passover meal. Passover was the greatest of all holidays to begin with, with for, the, for the Jewish people. It was a reminder that, that God had delivered them of, from Pharaoh, right? As how he saved them from their slavery and made them a people and brought them out of Egypt. It was a meal to commemorate the freedom in God. And not only that, the Passover reminds us that in that evening, how were they set free? The last of the ten plagues. Well, the lamb had to be sacrificed. And if they put the blood's lamb over their doorposts and over their, their windows, then the angel of death, God's wrath, would pass over that house. And they'd be saved by, by God's grace simply through their faithfulness by putting the, the lamb's blood over them. So the people of Israel did this, and the angel of death passed over them. Of course, it didn't pass over those who didn't have the blood. And so there was great mourning in Egypt, and it was difficult. And, and finally, the Egyptians expelled the, the Israelites and they were free. This meal of commemoration was rich with meaning and joy. It was a reminder to a people who were still in somewhat of a captivity that God was their great redeemer, and they were looking forward to their Messiah, a reminder that God did not abandon his people forever, but he does bring them to freedom. It's a happy, joyful meal. And as they begin this meal, Jesus walks in, and he has his disciples who are kind of like us, you know, me at least, I don't know, some, maybe some of you, and they were arguing with each other, who was the greatest? You know, clearly Jesus likes me best. And as they're having this argument, Jesus just humbly walks in, he takes off his cloak, puts on a towel, and he does the, the humble job of washing their feet. And after we have this, the, 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 the mood of this joyful occasion begins to turn a little darker. As Jesus then begins to tell them, hey, this Passover lamb, that's me. And my blood is going to be shed for you. And my body is going to be broken for you. But that, that, that cup of the new, it's a cup of a new covenant. There's going to be a whole new way of grace and mercy that, that I'm going to be doing. It's going to be good things, but, but difficulty awaits. It's going to be hard. And the disciples are hearing this, and their hearts are beginning to break because this is not what you expect. Plus, just a few days earlier that Jesus rode in, into Jerusalem with the shouts of acclamation of all the people saying, Hosanna, save us. The Messiah is here. 
This is not the speech you would think the Messiah would give on this wonderful festive occasion. And then Jesus goes on and he says to them, he says, listen, it's, it's going to get really tough, guys. It's going to be pretty brutally bad. It's going to be, for you guys, a time of deep mourning is coming. It's going to be really rough. And it's going to be kind of like a, a woman when she goes into labor. Now, this is an experience that I've never had, right? And I'm grateful for that. But it's something I can't do. But I saw my wife when she went into labor. Not a happy day, at least at first. But he says it's going to be like a woman going into labor. It's going to be miserable. It's going to be awful. You're going to have despair. But your great pain, your despair, is going to turn to incredible joy. It's not going to last forever. And no one's going to be able to steal that joy from you. And he goes on and he describes these. But in this evening, he said, part of the suffering, the pain, is that you're all going to abandon me. There, in fact, there's somebody sitting at this table right now who's going to betray me into the hands of, of our enemy. And they all looked around and said, clearly, it can't be me. And, and Jesus, I mean, straight up basically tells him it's Judas. He says, the guy who's dipping his, his bread in the wine next to me, that's the guy. And, and Judas was doing that. He's like, this guy right here. And, and they all thought Judas was so great they, that it, it wasn't even on their radar that Judas could possibly be the one who betrayed Jesus. He was like, he was in. So when Judas ends up leaving, they're thinking he's off doing some business or whatever. Peter steps up and he's like, well, clearly I would never deny you, Jesus. In fact, I would die for you. And Jesus says, actually, Peter, before tomorrow morning, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. This is a real mood killer for a festive occasion. The disciples have this heavy cloud begin sitting over this meal and and in the midst of this weight and this heaviness, Jesus then goes on to give them a reason for hope. And this is how Jesus encourages his disciples in the midst of what he knew was coming to them. He says, starting verse 1, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. What? You said you're going to die. We're going to betray you. They're supposed to be Messiah, and we're not going to be faithful, and everything's going to fall apart. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Yeah, he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. A little bit later on, he talks about that he is God. So, you know, believe, trust him. God is trustworthy. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. That makes sense. I think sometimes we read God's word and it gives us encouragement. And when then we look at our lives and we say, what, don't be troubled? Are you kidding me? I've got this horrible thing that I'm grieving. I've suffered this horrible injustice. I've got this pain. I've got this health issue that's going on. I've got problems in my home. I've got problems in my heart. Don't be troubled. And it's great to read the promises of Scripture, but sometimes, don't we sometimes look at that and say, well, that's, that's nice, but I'm a little troubled here? That's where the disciples were. But Jesus gave them a reason for hope to carry them on through this. Although he had given them this great hope, things went from bad to worse. Right? At the meal, they end up, they leave. It says during that time, Jesus became very, very sad. He's walking them to the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes them there. While he's in the garden, he sets a couple of apostles aside, specifically says, you need to be praying. Right? But they were so worn out with grief that they couldn't even keep their eyes open. Jesus goes a stone's throw away, and he's crying out to God, praying for strength, and he even begs the Father. He says, if there's any other way to do this, 
let's, let's not do the cross, but not my will, but yours be done. And then the sound of the soldiers, the torches start lighting up the, the garden as we see Judas leading uh, a regiment of, of people with clubs and, and, and all kinds of swords and, and weapons to go arrest Jesus. And Judas, the good friend, betrays our Lord with a kiss, the betrayal of a deep friend. And the disciples, Peter takes his sword out and swipes at the high priest. I guarantee he wasn't aiming for the ear, but he got it. Jesus says, hey, put that sword away. You live by it, you're going to die by it. Enough of this. And he sticks the guy's ear back on. And he goes to be arrested. And they take him to Caiaphas, the high priest's house, where he has a mock trial of a sham. And Peter's outside, can see what's going on. And, and yet, Peter was so terrified, seeing the injustice around him when people ask him if he was with Jesus, even with cursing, he said, absolutely not. And the rooster crows and he runs away convicted because he recognized that he too had betrayed his Lord. Jesus looks out at him, and now he's fully alone. He's taken from there, from a horrible trial to another one before the Roman judge Pilate, a, a, a leader there, and things are, aren't going well. And, uh, and ultimately, the crowds begin to cry for, for crucifixion. Pilate trying to make things go good. He's like, all right, here's a, here's a murderer, a, a thief, a bad guy, Barabbas or Jesus. You could pick, take your pick of the two, and the people pick Barabbas. If you were a disciple, you know how hard that would be, knowing who Jesus is, and to see the nation who was shouting, Hosanna, save us, Messiah, just a few days before, now yelling, crucify, crucify. He was stripped naked, humiliated, beaten, near to death, and then condemned to death on a cross, and there he dies put on the cross early and then taken off and finally dies in the afternoon. No one's there to, to bury him except for two of his secret apostles or disciples who were too afraid to stand with Jesus in life, but now with their wealth, the power, they were able to go and get him off the cross and, and bury him quickly with great expense and a tomb to fulfill prophecy. That was right there close by. If that wasn't enough, the tomb is sealed the religious leaders come up and say, hey, we don't trust these disciples. This guy, Jesus, said that he was going to raise again. So let's put some soldiers around that. So the soldiers were there to protect anybody from stealing a body. They had no concept that Jesus would be coming out of that tomb on his own. It went from bad to worse. And the disciples' hearts were troubled. And they stayed in an upper room for several days. But the joy is, but that's not where the story ends. And we remember the rest of the story, remember what Jesus told his disciples in preparation for this darkness. See, he told them that heaven awaits. He told them it's not just about this. This is something that he gave them to have courage. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. And what are we going to believe? It, in my Father's house are many rooms. Now, I wondered why he said that before, and then we got to go to Israel a couple weeks, well, last week. Wow, that's been a big week. So I was there, and we were standing at, at Simon Peter's house at, in, uh, in Capernaum, where Jesus had his ministry. And I realized that the homes in that time were built very different. Like, my house is, like, next door to my dad's house, right? Because that would be weird. To, you know, we just don't build our houses together. Like, some of you have, like, your parents are in the next state, right? You just have some distance. We're Americans. I like space, but... In Christ's day, if you had a house, then you had kids, you had a son, you'd build 
his family would build a house, a room on next to your, like on the same property, inside the same compound, sharing the same walls. And then when they had kids, they would build on. Your house would get bigger and bigger and bigger. And Jesus talks to them in understanding, a way of saying, listen, in my father's house are many rooms. Why does that matter? It's not the architects you're not supposed to worry about. It's, it's what he's saying about the belonging. That Jesus didn't say, you know, in my father's kingdom are many great hotels. And I'm going up there now to get a reservation for you, right? So that where I am, you can visit. He doesn't say that. He didn't even say, in my father's city are many fine houses, and I've got a property for you. That is, it is fantastic. But you're still not part of my family. What he says, in my father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. That is... That's an amazing thing, that God has a place for me and you in heaven. So we have to ask ourselves, how good is heaven, right? Like if it's supposed to cheer his disciples up from the darkest moment of their life, if this is something, the thing that Jesus, he tells them, this is what's supposed to cheer you up in the midst of this, to give you courage, to give you, to give you strength, that, you're gonna, that heaven awaits, how awesome must heaven be? And I have to tell you, that the church throughout history has done a very poor job. I think we've undersold heaven by quite a bit. It's not just a fluffy little cloud land with a, you know, the big old gate on the front. We're going to be playing little stringed instruments and singing all the time. Praise God. That would be mind-numbingly awful. Right? But why is it that the church hasn't described heaven so adequately for the church? Because it can't be described adequately for the church. We see places in Scripture that tell us that heaven is so fantastic that it's beyond the human's mind to comprehend. That in our non-glorified bodies, we lack the capacity to, to, to get it. It'd be like describing a rainbow to a dog. We just can't do it. And so it's, instead of trying to explain all the wonders of what heaven is, we, we know this. It's better than you can imagine. But we do have little tastes in scripture that give us just hints or foretastes of what it must be like. And one of those is in the very back, the very end of scripture. The, the John, who, who wrote the gospel, also wrote at the end of his life a prophecy that God had given him called Revelation, where God reveals to him in very vivid imagery of the purpose of everything, the entire world, and what God was doing all the way through it. And also doesn't just say what happened in the past, but what's going to happen next. And in that, the very end of Revelation, we see as the whole world and all of this creation comes to its culmination and, and God comes in and he, he brings an end to all of the injustice and he finally returns, we get a brief description of heaven as it's revealed. And I want to read it for you now. It'll be on the screen. In Revelation 21, 1 through 4, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. It means they're dead. And there was no longer any sea. Why? Because the sea is the chaos out of which order came from. But there's not any chaos. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I don't know what that means, but I know it's going to be beautiful. And I heard a loud voice saying, from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. I think it's amazing as you just hear this description of heaven. 
we can't understand how good it is, but at least I think in this revelation, God shows us that at least we could know how all the bad things that aren't going to be there. And the first thing we see is a new heaven and a new earth. It's, it's both physical and spiritual, which is amazing. God is spirit. I want to see the spiritual things. I want to see angels. I think mean, it's going to be awesome to, to dwell fully in the spiritual realm in, in a way that we can, can get. We will be there. But it's not just going to be spirit because the physical world is pretty awesome too, right? Think about it. Like, with bodies, we can climb mountains, and we can see sunrises, and we can feel the, the breeze across. We can enjoy good food. Don't you like a good meal? Like, are some of you today, because it's Easter, you're preparing some tasty meal? Spirits can't eat. That's why ghosts are so grumpy. That's what I think, right? But, but there's going to be a new earth, physical all of the joy. In fact, one of the first things we do when we get to heaven is we have a big dinner. Yes. But that means all the rest of the great things of life and the spirit and the physical world, all the great things are there, but what's not there? No more death or sadness or pain or crying or mourning or injustice. All of those things are gone. Can we comprehend a place that at least doesn't have the bad? You're just getting the foretaste a tiny bit of what awaits us. That's pretty amazing. Can you just imagine this world without corruption, without annoying pop-ups on your computer, right? Without nasty people that are, how about a world in which there are no campaigns uh, where you don't have like the campaigns all the time that telling how we're supposed to hate each other? How about that? That would be a pretty amazing. How about a world in which we don't have to worry about the economy going up and down and crazy? How about a world in which there was absolutely no crime? How about a world in which people never, ever, ever got sick? You don't even need hospitals that you, you just don't get hurt. How about that? Wouldn't that be amazing? Not only will it be, it's, that's what it, I mean, that's if we just imagine this world. It's going to be fantastic. The heaven is, is, is worthy, and I think it's something amazing. When I really studied and I understood this text, that, that Jesus didn't say, take heart, right? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, because, because in hell, there is a place that should be for you, but I'm going to die so you don't have to go there. That's not what he said. That's certainly what he did. But you have to understand, brothers and sisters, we were, not, we were not just saved from hell. We are saved for heaven. Let that sink in. That's amazing. Because it would have been more than enough for God just to wipe the slate clean and say, all right, just like you never sinned but you're still my creation, you're still whatever, but you're not part of my family, and, and you're just going to get earth. He saved us for heaven. In John 14, too, he says this, in my Father's house has many rooms, and we know it's in heaven because where does the Father live? Our Father who art in heaven. That's how Jesus says. That's his address. So when we're addressing prayers, that's where they go. That's where God is. So he's going to his Father's house in heaven, has many rooms, right? And Jesus is preparing a place for us, right? And, and think about that he's preparing our place. That means that we are welcome. We don't prepare places for people that aren't welcome. God wants you there. Jesus wants you there. He's expecting you. He knows you. He's got it prepared. It's not like you get to heaven and it's like on moving day when you show up with your U-Haul and now you've got to prepare your house and unpack everything. Praise God, there's no U-Hauls at cemeteries. We get to heaven, your place is ready. God's made it for you. Custom. It's a place for you are welcome. But it's not just that, it's that you belong. 
There is a huge difference. He didn't say, I'm going, in my father's house are lots of guest rooms. So, so don't worry, you can come and stay with us in our house. He said, I'm preparing a place for you in the house. You're family now. Have you ever felt like this world is a shoe that just is a size too small? Like we're living in it, we walk around in it, but it just doesn't feel right? It's because this world isn't our home. This is not what we were designed for. It, it does feel uncomfortable. There's something wrong with this world. This is, this is a place that we, we're walking towards our home. When you get there, you will be at the one place you fully belong. It'll be right. It'll be home. In 13.3, the next verse, he says, if I go prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you to be with me that, that you also may be with me where I am. That makes sense. Why would Jesus go and prepare a place and then be like, well, good luck. He's like, I'm coming back. But this was a bold prediction the night before he's executed. He says, yeah, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to heaven. And, and how do you get to heaven? Well, you die. I'm going to die. I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm also going to come back, which means that he predicted his own resurrection the night before he was killed, which is pretty big, bold statement. But that would be the evidence for the disciples what Jesus promised is true. See, when Jesus rose again from the grave, it's not like he just disappeared and he didn't go to fairy tale land. He actually went somewhere because he exists. The scripture tells us he did a lot of things. He went to preach the gospel to those that were in captivity and led them out. And that's a mystery. And I would love to talk philosophically and theologically what I think happened there. But, but who knows? But he does that. And he also goes to heaven. He begins preparing the place. He goes to the Father. Well, he, he says, I'm going to come back. He's going to resurrect. Can he do it? Well, the next day would, would tell. Because they killed him. They put him in a tomb. He'd been there for beyond the third day. And then we have, I think, the, an incredible comeback. You know, we think about, I like sports, and there are times that I've watched. I, I still like the Broncos, even though it's, it's, it's a hard for me to do. Um, and sometimes you see a program or a game that's just awful, right? And you just think, oh, there's no hope. And then they come back, and they end up winning, and how like, that makes the victory even that much better. Right? Well, Jesus had things, uh, he was definitely the underdog in this, right? Because he was dead, and so it's pretty hard to do anything while you're dead. And not only dead, but all wrapped up and bound up in spices and cloths, stuck in a cave with a big stone in front of it where it's totally dark, and guards on the outside. Looks like this one's in the bag for the devil, right? It looks like, Victor, he had this one in the bag. It was fourth quarter, it seemed like the clock had already run down, it seemed like it was done, and then we were like, nope. But then Jesus, he all of a sudden... We have, it reads in scripture, it was an amazing thing. Early that morning, when no one suspected, all of a sudden there's an earthquake. Blah, 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 and then the stone gets thrown away, like it's rolled away because there's an angel there. It's like, get that out of here. And Jesus comes out of the tomb. And the guards who had no, no one told them. Some of them passed out in fear. Other ones just ran away. They're like, ah, right? Because this was not part of the job description. And all of a sudden, uh, these women were at the same time, they were going to the tomb because they were sad and they didn't get to pay their respects to their Lord and Savior. So they're going to the tomb and they're talking to each other, how are we going to move that big old stone? And I don't know what they're going to think they're going to do with the guards, but they show up and there's no guards and they see like little chaos and the stones moved aside and the tomb's empty and they're thinking, oh no. Their first thought is not a resurrection. Their thought is a, as a theft. Something bad has happened. So what do they do? They hightail it back to the upper room and the disciples are like, doo, doo, doo. hey guys, the body's gone. Do you have Peter and John? 
They're like, uh-oh, and they on a foot race. They get there. John's younger, so he gets there first, but he's a little more of a coward. Peter runs right in. What does he see? Empty. It is empty. sees the cloth that Jesus was wrapped in, that the shroud was there, but there's no body. And they're thinking, what is this? So uh, they turn around, and they're walking back to their, their, the upper room, bewildered, thinking to themselves, somebody got to stole the body. This is not going to be good, because now they're going to come after us. I don't know. It would have been bad news. Mary Magdalene, who was also one of Jesus' followers, also was there. She was one of the women who told them that the, the tomb was empty. She was there. She didn't go in while the guys were in there, but she peeks her head inside, and she saw something they didn't see. And all of a sudden, there's these two angels dressed in lightning clothes, which is pretty awesome. And they're like, hey, woman, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? Great question. And Mary, I, you know, for me, I would think I'd be like, why you're in lightning clothes? But she was filled with grief. And she hears some steps behind her. And she thinks it's the gardener. So she turns around and she just begs him and she says, you know, sir, if you've taken my master, just tell me where he is and I'll return the body. And then he says, Mary. And she recognized his voice and she looks up and there's her savior alive. And she goes to give him a big hug and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, don't, can't cling to me yet. I haven't been to the father. I don't know what that's all about, but he hadn't been there yet. She said, but I got something for you to do. Go back and tell those disciples I'm alive. And so she runs back, and she goes to the room, and she's like, guys, I've seen Jesus. And they're like, where did they lay his body? He's like, no, 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 he's alive. And they're like, you're crazy. And he's like, no, he's alive. And they debated this over and over, and they started to think about it. He gave them these promises. And then during that day, Jesus does some amazing things. First, he, he shows up to some other women. He shows up to, uh, his, with his brothers. He had brothers who didn't believe that he was the Messiah. Can you imagine? And then he gets to show up and be like, ha, 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 I told you so. Like, there's a reason I'm, on, I'm mom's favorite, you know? And, and one of them ends up becoming like the leader of the early church, James the Just. He had his, one of his letters, the epistles, was scripture in the New Testament. Amazing guy, right? They believe because they saw. There's these, just randomly, there's these two disciples, the followers of Jesus, not any of the 12, just these two guys who were following Jesus and they saw the crucifixion. They were so brokenhearted. And, and so they're on their way walking back to this town called Emmaus outside of the city. And, and on their way there, Jesus, he pranks them. He shows up, just shows his great sense of humor. He shows up and he's like, hey guys, why are you so sad? And they're like, because he, they killed our savior. And he's like, oh, let me talk about scripture, how this was predicted. And, he, uh, and, then, and talks about how he's going to be resurrected. And then he's like, hey, let's, let's uh, have a little feast together. How about some bread and wine? And they do that. And all of a sudden they recognize it's Jesus. He's like, aha, and he disappears. I love that story. <laughs> and then he shows up. The disciples all got the room barricaded because they're waiting for the, the uh, uh, Romans or officials to come in and, and kill them because the body's gone, right? And they're terrified. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this locked room, Jesus just appears. He's like, boom, hello. And they're like, what? And he's like, look. And what does he ask for? He says, bring me some fish. Why? Because ghosts don't eat. And so he has a fish with them. And they recognize that he actually raised from the dead. And then poof, he's gone. Thomas, who comes a little bit later, because I don't know what he was doing, right? He shows up, and they were like, he was here. Jesus is alive. The great comeback. He did. He came back. It's awesome. And Thomas is like, uh-uh. Like that, you guys are crazy. You all sad with grief. Until I see the wounds myself, I'm going to believe, because he wasn't stupid, right? Thomas had a brain. He was like, people don't just raise from the dead. Well, Jesus heard that. And a week later, because I love how he makes Thomas wait. Because can you imagine that, that whole week? And they're like, no, nah, dude. Seriously, Thomas, we saw him. And he's like, no, Jesus shows up. And what does he do? Does he chastise him? He does not. He says, hey, man, see the wounds? If you need to touch him, touch him. You have doubts? I'll fulfill them. 
Blessed are those who don't have to deal with that kind of doubt, but now believe. And Thomas goes to his knees and he gives one of the greatest declarations of faith. My Lord and my God, he recognized that Jesus was alive and his life was changed. It's an amazing thing. And if that wasn't enough, for 40 days, Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, meeting all kinds of people, reveals himself publicly. This was not just in secret. This is a big deal. And part of that, he had his disciples go up to, to Galilee, to his hometown area. And he takes them onto a mountain. He says, guys, I've got work for you to do now. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Clearly, I can overcome death, right? Therefore, this is what I want you to do. Go make disciples of all kinds of people. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey everything I've commanded. Then be sure of this. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then he takes them back. And eventually, at the end of that 40-day period, they're all gathering back again in Jerusalem for a feast of, of uh, a, a, a wonderful feast called Pentecost. It's a wonderful celebration of the harvest, everything coming in. It's a wonderful day. And they're all there, and the disciples are there for that, and Jesus meets them one more time, and he takes them out to this hill, this Mount of Olives, which is, and, and he says to them, guys, I gave you that commission to go make disciples. This is how you're going to do it. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, that's the area around it, and then to the ends of the earth. And after he says this, he did the most unexpected thing. He just levitates to heaven. Now, the apostles weren't expecting that. And so they're like looking up there, and they're saying, what? What are you? And these, these two angels, dressed in white, stand next to these men. In Acts 1.11, this is what it says to them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken to you, or taken from you into heaven, will come back the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, I want you to think about what the apostles must be thinking. Because it, it, the night before his, his crucifixion, Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. If my Father's house has many rooms, if that weren't so, I wouldn't have told you that. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back so I can take you to be with me where I am. So why would he leave them? I imagine they weren't looking for that. They were like, well, why would you just go? Heaven is ready. Why am I still here? Have you ever wondered that as a Christian? Why God didn't just zap you to heaven the moment you came to faith? Because he has work for you to do. And so the angels encourage these guys to go back in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit and for the work to begin. And it does. But to know this, as we celebrate his resurrection, the great comeback, like the apostles on this day, we don't just remember his return. We remember not just the great comeback, but the greatest of all comebacks, his second coming. See, if Jesus went to heaven, he prepared a place for us, he's coming back. And I don't know about you, but I'm not in heaven yet. But if he made a place for you, he's coming back to get us. And this is where the joy starts coming in. He's prepared a place for us. He's preparing us for that place. In this time, we've got work to do. Yes, we want to be faithful, but, but our hope isn't in our work. Our hope is in our return of our Savior. He's coming back. Just as much as he came out of that tomb, he's coming back. And heaven awaits. In verse 14, he says uh, how we're going to get there. He just told them, I'm preparing a place for you. I'll come back to get you. And then he says to them, and you know the, place, you know the way to the place I'm going. And Thomas, who is honest, I love that, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? It seems very practical. And then Jesus answers, so amazing, he says, I am the way the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So many of us are looking for a road map into heaven, and Jesus says it's not a map, it's not a place, it's a person, it's him. 
They knew the way because they knew him. Jesus is the way to heaven. He's the gate. He's, the, he's our access into this, this very real space. And he's not only a way into heaven, he is the way into heaven. No one comes to the Father except through him. Well, that seems awfully narrow-minded of you, Jesus. Well, no, maybe not. Why is Jesus the way? Because he's the only one qualified to be both sacrifice and savior. Right? You have, he was fully man. Jesus was a human like all of us, but unlike all of us, he was sinless. Try to live 33 years a sinless person in this life. Try to live 33 minutes as a human in this life and not be sinful. Yet he lived all of those years with all of those difficulties, and yet he was sinless. He was qualified to be a sacrifice for sin, but he was also, he was, had the capacity to die for all people's sin because he wasn't just a person. He was God himself. And so he could pay for not just one sin, but for all sin for all time. You know, name me one other being that has ever lived any other person in all of human history that is both fully God and fully man, sinless. There aren't any. But there is Jesus. And I'm not upset that there's not more than one way. I'm just grateful there is a way. And we can know him. In fact, Jesus even talks about this in three, John 3.16 as he talks about his purpose for coming. That the man who would later bury him, a man named Nicodemus, who's a very powerful, influential guy, this is what he said. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The way into heaven is not through doing all kinds of things. It's that we are saved by grace through faith. That's what it is to whoever believes in him. And faith is not perfection. Aren't you glad for that? That whoever follows me perfectly will earn their place in heaven. Oh, sorry, I'm disqualified. Whoever believes in me. And, and really, what is faith? It's trusting what we can't prove. There's, that's part of it. But I think if we want to understand faith and, and how it actually interacts in our lives, we must look at it in its, its biggest form, its fullest form. Faith in its fullest form is faithfulness. Faithfulness is, is simply fidelity. God wants us to love him. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be, you know, uh, blameless. He was blameless. But we do have to love him. We have to say, God, it's, it's your kingdom first. It's, it's your way, not mine. It's, it's I love you. I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm not going to be messing around with all these other things and giving my heart to others like, God, I'm faithful to you. And that faith is, is demonstrated in all kinds of cool ways. It's belief and confession and repentance and being baptized and being discipled. There's lots of ways we demonstrate faithfulness. Just like in marriage, I'm faithful to my wife. And I demonstrate that in lots of different ways. I'm kind to her. I provide for her. I, I develop a good relationship with her, right? I make sure that I don't give my heart to anybody else, right? There's a lot of things that I do because I'm faithful to my wife. And there's a lot of things we do because we're faithful to God. We express our faith to him, to believe, to trust him, even when we have doubts. We say, God, I don't understand everything, but I do know this as I'm sticking with you. To repent, man, to, to say, you know what? I'm done living my life like I'm the king of my life. I would rather you kind of, I'm going to follow your ways. How about our, uh, our confession? Confession is just identifying with. I'm done just being Aaron's going to earn his way to heaven. I'm like, I'm with Jesus. He's got it. I'm his. Right? And those we do all the time. Baptism, to have our sins washed away. They've been paid for. Have them washed away. Be reborn into a new kingdom. How about this? Uh, to be discipled, to be part of a church and grow in that faithfulness, to learn how to follow him more and more, surrounded by the people who love him too. God is calling us into a relationship. The way to heaven is to know God and to, to give our hearts to him. But when we put our hope in the Lord, we have a reason for great courage, don't we? So we could take heart in the midst of this world. It's a broken place. There's bad things that happen in this world, but you know what? This world isn't all there is. 
that this world doesn't last forever. Aren't you glad to know that earth wasn't the period on the end of all of God's creation? That, that there's something better, right? And because of that, to know that we have a place there, that I belong there in heaven and not just anywhere in heaven, but in God's own household in heaven, that's a pretty amazing thing. Aren't you glad to know that this world isn't about us kind of getting it right on our own until we deserve God? But he said, I'm coming back to rescue you. Just as I exited that tomb, I'm coming back out of heaven. Even the angels testified he's going to come back the same way. So be ready, right? Heaven awaits. So why does that matter for me and you? Why is that such good news? Well, I think it's this. The first one is the reality of heaven is, is what gives me hope. Right? I don't have my hope in this world because this world doesn't work out great for anybody because all of us die at the end of the day. Right? We, we, at the end of it, no matter how rich or poor, how good things were for you or bad, that's just no, I don't know anybody that's you know, more than 200 years old. Back down, right? We just don't last that long. Aren't you glad to know this is not all there is? And then we look at the trajectory of the world. Aren't you glad that we're not supposed to make this a heaven on earth? Like there's not going to be some type of utopia we finally reach to as, as humans and that's what we're supposed to... And then we look at how people run things, and we're like, that's probably not going to be a great utopia. Then my hope isn't in this world. My hope is in heaven. This world's not all there is. And guess what? Heaven, the next life, heaven is so much longer. It goes for eternity. And not only that, it's so much better. It's this world without all the bad things and so many good things we can't even comprehend. It's worthy to actually hope for. Not only that, it's, uh, it's, it's worthy of, of, of our joy. Like it's worthy of us saying, you know what? I'm excited for heaven to come. It's like, uh, I remember when I was a little kid, I took our first vacation. We went to Disneyland, and it, I was so excited because there was a mouse that lived there, and I was excited to see him. And I was like, whoa, right? And I couldn't sleep for days and all this because I was excited because something good was coming. But the saddest part is I had to come home from Disneyland eventually, right? It ended. Heaven doesn't end. It's worthy. So we have hope. In this world, if you're going to be robbed, if there are things that are going to happen in this life that, that just never in this life ever get resi- uh, fixed, maybe it's a health issue or a relationship issue or maybe there's an injustice in, that's happening in our culture or even in your family, a brokenness that just never gets fixed, there's a place where everything is fixed and you're going there. And because of that, heaven gives me courage because I know it's real. Heaven, Jesus didn't come back from imaginary land. He went somewhere. And he told us exactly where he's going, and he says, I'm preparing a place, and he came back from that place. That gives me courage, because what are you going to take from me? What can this world take from me that God is not going to give me in greater measure? What, are you going to kill me? Oh, okay, I'm going to heaven. Oh, you're going to be unjust to me in this life? Well, this is a temporary small thing, and I can endure that because my hope isn't here. And I have a little bit of a smugness because I know that even all the people who think they won, like the devil, where they think, ah, and all of our corruption and injustice, I'm like, well, actually, God has a final say on that. So I can do something crazy. I can actually bless those who persecute me. I can pray for those who, are, who say bad things and, and work against us. I can, I can love my enemy because I can recognize that there's an invitation for them to this place too. So I have courage in this life. And not only that, I know that my suffering is temporary. Do you know you don't live here forever? Praise God. So if you're suffering, it's not going to be forever. It might be the rest of your life, but it won't be really. When you're in the scope of eternity, it will end. There's a season to all things. And more than that, if you're in God's kingdom, God's promised that all of your pain has purpose. He only allows you to suffer the very things that are actually sanctifying you. Your suffering has been, has been curated for your sanctification. 
So if we're suffering, Scripture says, patiently endure it. It's doing its good work. Get through it, right? Have courage. It's not overcoming you. It's not totally unjust, although the world may have seemed unjust. God's doing something. See, heaven reminds me God wins. Good wins. Life wins. Be courageous. This world is not all there is, which is why heaven gives me joy. See, Jesus said that this struggle is going to be like a woman in childbirth, but then they would see him alive again, and their joy would be huge, and no one would be able to take it away. Why is that? Because what is joy? Joy is, is our current experience that we have plus our hope. And where is my hope? It's in where God is picking a, a place for me. My hope stretches to heaven. It is huge, and nothing can take that away. And so we live different. Because of what Jesus did, because he came from that tomb and proved that heaven is real. He proved that not only did he rise again, but he also proved his, his commitment to coming back. So, how do we apply this to those of us who live with courage, joy, hope? Well, on your connection card, I've got some next steps. Why? Because followers of Jesus follow him. We don't just stand and watch him. That's boring. But we want to apply our faith. Here's some things that you can do. Maybe you want to attend the next five weeks. Why? Because there's even more good news. Heaven is just the beginning. Like, there are so many amazing things that God has given us great joy. Come back. Say to God, I want to learn. I want to give my heart, have that fidelity. Man, I want to have some reason for good joy in this life. Come back these next, make that commitment, a commitment of following into God. And nothing else you might want to do is you might want to join a life group. Why? Because the Christian was never designed to be alone. It's just not how the church has ever been. You know, church actually literally means the assembly. You can't assemble if you're alone. You didn't watch like the Avengers and there was just like the first Avenger. And he's like, Avenger, assemble. That would be stupid, right? The church assembles. That's who we are. If you're by yourself, you're a Christian. When you gather, you're the assembly. So be part of a church. Grow together, have community together. That's what we do. It's not just a Bible study, though we study scripture, but we experience the adventure of this life together. And if you need to do that, let us know. Mark that down, and we'll help you connect in a life group. Something else you might want to do is to join the membership class. Why? Because that next step of faithfulness. Maybe you've been part of this church for a while, and you're just like, you know what? You need to make it official. So I'm part of this. I'm, putting my, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to take that next step to come together, to, to work together in this body to help bring about God's glory and to fulfill the good works that he's called us to do, to be part of a fellowship, to learn how to love each other as we learn how to love God more and more. If that's you, I would say join our, next, our, our membership class next week. I'll talk about who we are, what we believe, and how you can connect. We'd love to have you there. Or maybe for you, you need to take that next step of your faith, and I'm going to say baptism. Well, certainly you need to believe and repent and confess. And we're going to talk about all of those in the baptism class, So, but it's also expressing our faith in baptism. And why we do that, because it's a weird thing. Why, is, why do Christians do it? But if you need to express your faith in that, it's one of the things that Jesus said, if you're going to be faithful to me, this is what you should do. So if you've not done that, I invite you to come join our membership or our baptism class. It's going to be it's about 15, 20 minutes, not terribly long. But talk about what it is and how we do it and how we can help you take that next step. So maybe that's your next step today. Or maybe today you need to take your first step. The, the, there is heaven, but we have to know the way. And maybe you showed up this morning and you knew about heaven. And you knew there was a resurrection, but you didn't realize that there was a way for you to get there. Or maybe the way that you thought wasn't the way that God said. But Jesus made it very clear. He is the way. And that we're saved by grace through faith. And if you need to express that and, and to choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior, why not do it today? And if you're going to do that, let me know. As a pastor, I'd love to help you take those steps. To help you express your faith and belief and confession and repentance. Those are things you're going to express the rest of your life. So let's get a good start. 
to be baptized, to be part of a healthy church family as you grow in that. Take that step, that step of life, so that you can have the joy and the hope and and the courage that, uh, well, really the resurrection was designed to give us. So those are some next steps I encourage you to take. Put those on your connection card, please. Let me know what they are so I can pray for you. Put your prayer requests on there as well. In just a minute, we're going to take those. We're going to drop them in the offering basket as their pastor. I appreciate all you would do that. And uh, and as you do this, make this a commitment or a next step of faith, of faithfulness of you, uh, of yours to God on this wonderful Resurrection Sunday. Let me pray for you as you make these commitments. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to know that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are the God of all goodness, that you have overcome darkness, that you defeated death thoroughly. Father, that you've not only uh, saved us from hell and, and, and the, the consequence of our sins, but Father, you saved us for heaven. You saved us for your family. You saved us for, for your kingdom. But not only even the future, you saved us for a relationship with you now, for a life of purpose and meaning and of discipleship and of growth. And Father, I pray that that purpose of, 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 of your holy kingdom would become manifest in our hearts and our lives even now, even this morning. Help us to follow after you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us and you give us a, a guidance as to how Uh, What are these next steps that you want us to take? Help us to grow closer to you through them. And I pray as you do that, Father, that uh, the blessing of your kingdom, the peace and the joy and the hope would rest heavy upon all of those that are here today. That the the joy of the resurrection would be ours in its fullness. Lord, we celebrate you and we honor you with these commitments. We we praise you even with our tithes and offerings. May your kingdom be built. May you be glory, uh, Father, in, in everything we do. We pray this in the wonderful name of our resurrected Savior, Jesus.